0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Three, two, one. It's the Novos Ordo Watch Trapcast.
1: You've gotta be kidding.
0: You can't make the stuff up. Once again, we are back with another brand new super duper tradcast where we mop the floor with the Vatican II sect that sits in Rome and falsely claims to be the Catholic Church. So, welcome to episode number 15, which is going to be dedicated exclusively to continuing our analysis and refutation of the errors of John Salza on Sedevacantism. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to tell you about what I'm pretty sure is the first professional piece of music, the first ever professional song against Vatican II and the Novus Ordo Church. Our friends at True Restoration synergized their talent to put together a hilarious song entitled, Vatican II, What the Heck Are You? It is sung by Damo from Australia, and we have been authorized by True Restoration to give you a quick preview of the song. So, let's listen in. Here it is.
2: It started with John 23, when he usurped the papacy, a communistic, chubby little chubby. The Masons celebrate the day Ron Carly gave the store away. It cheered them up and made them very happy. Montini, known as Paul the Sick, an evil man built like a stick, implemented lies and a desolation. It must be said, the day he died, they pumped him with formaldehyde, his legacy sacramental mutilation of Vatican II. It's easy to tell, you are not from heaven, you are straight from hell. Satan's bunch of tools, treating us like fools. Our doctrines are true, but your doctrines smell. To John Paul II, an actor and a Marxist who received the mark of Shiva on his brow. Kissed the Koran and incensed Buddha, prayed with Jews he really shouldn't. Uh, to be a heretic, he showed us how. Oh, that dick and two, what the heck are you? A protestant religion which is based on Gnosticism. We've got St. Paz the 10th you've got Ain't Saints JP2. We'll keep the old and you can have the new. Research Ratsy and you will find he was a V2 mastermind, ended up as Benedict 16. He brought in Moldo Proprio to strike the trads another blow, now lives his final days in quarantine. Oh, Vatican II, please go hit the highway. We play by the
0: Okay, I think we'll uh, leave it at that for the preview. You can listen to the entire song for free at the True Restoration website, and we're putting the link to that in our show notes at tradcast.org. Just look for episode number 15. Now... While you can listen to the song online for free, if you want to download it, you have to purchase it. And you can do that through iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, and uh, a number of other services like that. The links to purchase are found on the same True Restoration page that we're giving you in the show notes. And there you can also see the complete lyrics to the song, which are really not just funny, but also right on the money. You know how it is with satire. What makes it so good and funny is the truth that's contained in it. So, Vatican II, What the Heck Are You? by Demo? Highly recommend it. And look, you can use the song as a great conversation starter, right? You can use it to cheer up a party, to get Sordo family members to wake up. Whatever. The possibilities are endless. And it also makes for a fun birthday gift, you know? When everybody else brings the usual stuff to the party, you bring Vatican II. What the heck are you? Well, maybe give it a try. All right, enough of the little advertisement here, and now on to the real business. You may recall that in Tradcast episode number nine, we began dissecting an interview that John Salza had given to Eric Gajewski on the Tradcat Night radio program of October 25th. 2015. That episode was entitled Sedevacantism, Fatima, and Freemasonry. And in it, Salza basically gave a preview of his book, True or False Pope, co authored with Robert Sisco, against Sedevacantism, which was published a few weeks later in January of this year, 2016. And so, in this interview, Salza put forth his arguments against Sedevacantism in a nutshell. In our Tradcast episode 9 of November 18th, 2015, we began dissecting the interview and started responding to Salza's arguments. We continued our refutation in Tradcast 11 of January 15th, 2016, but we didn't finish, and so we're going to now pick up where we left off then— and I would highly recommend that you listen to those two prior shows again, Tradcast 9 and Tradcast 11, if you want the full picture. But either way, we're going to simply continue now where we left off in episode 11. And I'm sorry that we've had to break it up like that, but as you know, there's been a lot going on because Francis never stops talking and it just takes a lot to put together a good quality podcast. And we don't want to skimp on quality just to give you more quantity. I think there are enough podcasts out there already that use a lot of time to say very little. And then, of course, there was also the great Novus Watch website upgrade and redesign that we talked about in the last podcast that we had to complete. And that took many, many hours... Daytime and nighttime, but it has now finally been released. Yes. So enjoy the new Novus ordo watch website at novosordowatch.org. And of course that also goes for Tradcast at Tratcast.org. We'll probably talk more about the new website in our next podcast. But right now, let's finally get back to Eric Gajewski and John Salza on Sedevacantism. Oh, (laughs) you may not be aware, but very recently, there was a falling out between Salza and Gajewski. And uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how it started, but You see, Gajewski is closely allied with the Reverend Paul Kramer, formerly associated with the Reverend Nicholas Gruner's Fatima operation, and Reverend Kramer, who believes Benedict XVI is the valid pope right now and not Francis, has realized that John Salza and Robert Sisko are hopelessly incompetent and deceptive in their theological argumentation. So, Reverend Kramer— I won't call him father because he was ordained in the Novus Ordo, right, which is of doubtful validity. Reverend Kramer called Salza and Sisko out on their errors in public. And, of course, they've vilified him in return, and now it's just ugly. But, in any case, the point being that Gajewski adheres to Kramer, and these two now oppose Salza and Sisko, even though neither Eric Gajewski nor Reverend Kramer are Sedevacantists. So, that's how bad it is with Salza and Cisco now, all right? Their theology is so bad and their argumentation against Sedevacantism is so flawed and manipulated that we now have non-Sedevacantist novus ordo priests siding with us, not endorsing our position, but siding with us on the theological underpinnings that pertain to the issues. So, that says a lot. And to see what the Reverend Kramer has to say about the pseudo-theology of Salsa and Sisko, we'll link some of his many posts in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. And, you know, as you read this, just always remember, this man has no ulterior motive. Reverend Kramer is not a sedevacantist, okay? He simply realized that Salsa and Sisko are promoting very dangerous errors. So, anyway, because of his sudden realization that John Salza has been promoting error instead of Catholic theology, Eric Gajewski has removed from his page the audio of the interview he did with Salza last October, the interview we've been commenting on. So, you won't find that on his Tradcat Night blog anymore. But, not to worry... We do, of course, still have our own copy, and uh, the Call Me Jorge blog has made that audio publicly available, so we'll be linking to that now in our show notes because we want to make sure you have the opportunity to listen to the whole show so you can get everything and everything in context and not just the bits and pieces that we dissect here, all right? So this is really just for fairness sake. So at long last, let's continue with the interview analysis. We are at 41 minutes and 45 seconds into the interview audio. Here is John Salza.
1: Yes, there is a distinction between the sin of heresy and the crime of heresy. And what the state of the will argue is they'll say, well, canon law does not have any coercive power over the pope and therefore he can't be guilty of the crime of heresy therefore he's guilty of the sin of heresy now that statement while the canon law does not have coercive power over pope that's true it is a specification of uh, the principles of divine law so insofar as principles of divine, divine law apply to the pope then canon law would certainly do so but the point is, uh, they resorted to saying that the popes are guilty of the sin of heresy, and by the way, by their own private judgment. The problem with that argument is that sin is a matter of the internal forum. It's not a matter of the external forum. And a sin, the sin of heresy alone and by itself in the internal forum is not sufficient for one to lose office.
0: <sighs> oh, brother. Where to start? All right, let's be succinct about this. First, when we say that Francis, and let's just only use Francis here because he is the currently reigning and most blatantly anti-Catholic papal claimant in Rome, and Salza defends even him as a true pope. When we say that Francis is guilty of the sin of heresy, it is not by private judgment that we do so, because private judgment would imply that we are using some sort of subjective uncatholic standard by which we arrive at a conclusion that is not certain but simply an opinion that is what is meant by the term private judgment and we'll talk more about that later on and prove that so private judgment is not what is happening here rather the judgment involved in saying that francis is a public heretic is obviously, a cognitive judgment, and in this sense, it is the judgment of individuals, it is true, but that doesn't make it a subjective judgment necessarily, nor does it mean it could reasonably be wrong, because the human mind is quite capable of making objective and certain judgments, sometimes even infallible judgments. And to deny that would actually amount to to modernism because the modernists are the ones who claim that the human mind is incapable of attaining objective truth. So, Salza is just blowing smoke here to confuse the issue by briefly introducing the term private judgment, hoping that his listeners will assume it means it's just subjective opinion, but that's false. And speaking of private judgment, by the way, Let's just use Salza's own definition of private judgment here for a minute, okay? Defined as as any sort of judgment that isn't rendered by the competent ecclesiastical authority. Let's go with that definition for a second. How is it that for Salza and the whole recognize and resist gang who agree with him, how is it that they can reject the new mass and Vatican II as not Catholic, How can they reject the 1983 Code of Canon Law, the Novos Ordo Saints, the 1993 Ecumenical Directory, and so on? Isn't that just their private judgment? I mean, it's certainly not the judgment of their church, which has repeatedly said the opposite. So, who's the one engaging in private judgment here, if we're taking the Salza definition of private judgment? The state of our position at least makes sense. We don't submit to Francis because we don't believe he's the Pope. And if we believed he was the Pope, we would submit to him. But these resistance guys have a total mess. Anyway, Salza then claims that sin is necessarily a matter of the internal forum. But that's not true, at least not the way he means it. Because if that were true, then there could be no such thing as public sin. And yet, Canon 855 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law, for example, bars the publicly unworthy from Holy Communion. So, who counts as publicly unworthy? It's not only the people who are guilty of some canonical crime, as John Salza would have you believe. No, it suffices that people be what canon law calls publicly infamous by infamy of fact. The Woywood-Smith Practical Commentary on the Code of Canon Law, 1952 edition, says the following under number 950, quote, Loss of good reputation. Canon law distinguishes between the loss of good reputation incurred by law, infamia juris, which is of the nature of a canonical penalty attached to certain crimes specified in the Code, and the loss of good reputation by bad conduct generally, infamia facti. Infamia juris, that would be the infamy of law, is an irregularity ex defectu. Infamia facti, the uh, infamy of fact, is a simple impediment of ordination and ceases When the bad reputation ceases, the ordinary is to judge whether one has regained one's good reputation. Infamia facti is described in Canon 2293 as the loss of good name in the minds of good and serious-minded Catholics through crime or bad morals. The loss may be caused by the commission of one public crime of a revolting nature or by general bad public conduct, unquote. That, again, was uh, the Woywood-Smith practical commentary on the Code of Canon Law, 1952 edition, from number 950. So, there you go. A sin can very much be public without it being an ecclesiastical crime, else the concept of infamy of fact would make no sense. So, in short it is possible to know a sinner in the external forum, and that doesn't require an ecclesiastical judgment. As the text that I quoted said, it is actually determined by whether you have lost your good name in the minds of good and serious-minded Catholics, okay? That is standard. John Salza, of course, would tell you that that's just private judgment, but the church says otherwise. So, what's curious here is that the Salza position actually sounds a lot like Francis does in a scandalous exhortation Amoris Laetitia, doesn't it? I mean, Francis essentially claims that living in an adulterous relationship that everybody knows about does not by itself make you publicly unworthy of receiving the Novos Ordo version of Holy Communion, right? He too gets rid of the concept of public sin because, hey, how do you know they're really guilty of mortal sin before God? You don't know the circumstances. You don't know if, if they commit adultery just so they don't harm the children or whatever. I mean, what bunk... Okay? Absolute bunk. So, John Salza is here actually sounding a lot like Francis. They both have in common that uh, they basically deny that sin can be public. Let's look at another source Father Adolf Tanquery in his Synopsis of Moral and Pastoral Theology. I'm using our own translation here now because the work was never officially translated into English, but uh, anybody who doubts the translation is welcome to do his own translation or consult a Latin expert. I really don't care. So what I'm about to quote here is Father Tanquery speaking about heresy as a sin Uh, and specifically about the component of the sin of heresy that is voluntary and pertinacious error. All right. Quote, voluntary and pertinacious error, that is, false judgment of the intellect by which some truth of faith is knowingly and willingly denied or positively called into doubt. Therefore, he who through levity, fear, or another motive denies it, A truth of faith only externally, by word or act, while internally retaining the faith, is not truly a heretic, although he can be regarded as such in the external forum. Likewise, he who is troubled by doubts and remains undecided is not properly a heretic because he does not make a judgment but it is otherwise if he positively judges some dogma to be doubtful. For pertinacity, it is not required that one be warned several times and persevere long in his obstinacy, but it suffices that knowingly and willingly he withholds his assent to a truth sufficiently proposed, whether he do so through pride or through passion for contradicting or for another cause." Therefore, he is not pertinacious who denies the truth of faith through ignorance, even vincible and affected, as long as he is ready to give his assent, if he should know it to be revealed and defined." Unquote. And that was Father Adolf Tanquery: Synopsis Theologiae Moralis et Pastoralis, Volume 2, 5th edition, 1919, number 656. Section A, subsection B. So, here we have Father Tanquery approach the question of heresy from the moral, not canonical or dogmatic standpoint, and he points out that even those who profess heresy but are not subjectively pertinacious, meaning in bad faith and acting against better knowledge, even such people can still be considered real heretics in the external forum. And when would that be? When would it be reasonable to consider someone a heretic in the external forum, even if, hypothetically speaking, he were not guilty at all before God of the sin of heresy? Let's ask someone who addresses that question directly, like Father Innocent Swoboda. In his 1941 book, Ignorance in Relation to the Imputability of Delicts, he says the following, quote, For example, Ignorance would not be presumed on the part of one who is versed in the law, or on the part of one who holds an office in regard to the things pertaining to his office. It is for this reason also, that even though ignorance is proved, it will be judged crass and non-excusing in these cases, unquote. That's, uh, again, that is Father Innocent Swoboda In his uh, book, Ignorance in Relation to the Imputability of Delicts, pages 185 to 186. Folks, this is totally in line with common sense and our own experience. When you're going 65 miles an hour in a zone marked 35 miles an hour and you get pulled over by the police, you're on the hook for speeding. It really doesn't matter if you didn't see the sign, if you didn't know, if you misread the display in your speedometer, whatever. It just doesn't matter. If you're on the road, you have an obligation to know what the speed limit is and to drive accordingly. Okay? That's it. So, all this just for the sake of argument, assuming for a moment the ridiculous idea that Francis were really ignorant of all the dogmas he denies. He is not ignorant of them, of course, but even if he were, it still wouldn't let him off the hook. Besides, Francis has demonstrated on several occasions that he doesn't care if something is heretical. And that right there shows his pertinacity, that disorder in the will... He demonstrates that he is willing to adhere to something regardless of whether it's heresy or not. And yes, we'll link that in the show notes, too, so you can see it for yourself. All right, we've spent enough time on this. Let's remember that this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive refutation of the errors of John Salza. We'll leave that for a collection of articles later with all the proper documentation— This is just supposed to be a quick response to what Salza has said in this interview with Erica Jewski from October 2015. So, let's get on with the audio. Here is John Salza.
1: In fact, the Sadie Vacantists generally believe that one must have the interior virtue of faith to be a member of the church. That's not true. Bellarmine himself says, and the consensus of the theologians say, one doesn't even have to have the interior virtue. Invisible, hidden virtue of faith in one's soul to be a member of the church.
0: Okay, so what else is new? I don't know where he gets this stuff. Which Sedevacantist has said that you must have the interior virtue of faith to be a member of the church? Salsa doesn't mention anyone specifically. He just claims that this is what Sedevacantists generally believe. Oh, Really? No, I think what's going on here is that Salsa is mixing up some things because he doesn't know what he's talking about, as usual. In order to be a member of the church, and I've pointed this out numerous times right here on Tradcast, there are four conditions you must fulfill. And these conditions were laid down by Pope Pius XII in his 1943 encyclical Mystici Corporis. Let me quote from that encyclical right now, number 22, quote, Actually, only those are to be included as members of the church who have been baptized and profess the true faith and who have not been so unfortunate as to separate themselves from the unity of the body or been excluded by legitimate authority for grave faults committed, unquote. The condition is that you must profess the true faith. There's nothing in that definition of Pius XII that says anything about the virtue of faith, the interior virtue of faith being present. Strictly speaking, for church membership, it doesn't matter if you do not believe what you profess as long as you profess it. That's why an occult or secret heretic is a member of the church, although the public heretic is not. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not saying that it's okay not to believe the Catholic faith as long as you profess it. Now, of course, that would be a mortal sin, and you would go to hell if you don't repent of it. But it doesn't impact church membership. All right? So, that's very important uh, to understand. Now, you may think, well that's just crazy. I mean, how could it not be required for church membership to truly believe the faith you profess? Right? Fair question. But the answer is actually not only very reasonable, but also very comforting. Because since no one can know what another person believes interiorly, if he doesn't reflect that in his outward actions, in his, in, his, in what he says, in what he professes, and so on, then if it were required for church membership to believe interiorly, no one could ever know who is and who isn't a member of the church. And thus, the church would no longer be visible because you would have no idea that so-and-so isn't secretly a heretic or a Freemason or a Protestant or whatever. So, Once again, we see that church teaching is very reasonable. No one is required to do or to know the impossible, okay? It's common sense that one's external actions typically reflect what one believes interiorly, and so that's what the church goes by. And what else could one go by anyway if not the external actions, that which is visible on the outside? Let me quote Father Swoboda again from the same book quoted earlier, Ignorance in Relation to the Imputability of Delicts, this time from page 180. Quote, Since subjective or internal facts cannot be proved by merely external arguments, they can be established only by presumptions and conjectures. The presumption is, moreover, in accord with common experience. Ordinarily, it is assumed that when a man performs an action, he is in possession of his faculties. That is, that he knows what he is doing and realizes the ordinary implications, both physical and moral, of his own conduct. Unquote. And that is why someone who externally manifests his adherence to Catholicism is a member of the Church, and why, by the same token, someone who manifests his rejection of Catholicism is not a member of the Church. It really does not matter what may or may not be going on internally in the soul. That is not for us to know or worry about. Still don't believe me? Well then at least believe Pope St. Pius X. In his big encyclical against modernism, *Pascendi Dominici Regis, he said this, quote, Although they express their astonishment that we should number them amongst the enemies of the Church, no one will be reasonably surprised that we should do so if leaving out of account the internal disposition of the soul, of which God alone is the judge, he considers their tenets, their manner of speech, and their action. Nor, indeed, would he be wrong in regarding them as the most pernicious of all the adversaries of the church. That's the encyclical Paschendi, number three. Notice what Pope Pius X says here. The modernists are the most pernicious enemies of the church, and we know this by their tenets, manner of speech, and actions. That is, we know it by what they say, how they speak, and how they act. Okay, And we know this regardless of what the internal disposition of the soul may be, of which God alone is the judge. In other words, we have to go by what is externally evident. The rest is between them and God. And now let's continue with John Salza. We are now at the 43 minute and three second mark.
1: The sin of heresy argument fails on that ground because sin is a matter of the internal form, not the external form. The crime of heresy is a matter of the external form.
0: Again, as we already said, that's false. And uh, now we're going to look at a quote from Father Eric McKenzie, who also knew a little bit about sacred theology, by the way, from his book, The Delict of Heresy and Its Commission, Penalization, and Absolution. McKenzie writes It is only when the sin of heresy is externalized that the individual is guilty of a delict and subject to judgment in the external forum of the church and punishable by the penalties contained in the penal legislation of the fifth book of the code of canon law, unquote. That is uh, page 33 in the paperback version of the book and page 92 in the electronic version that you can get through, through iBooks. Did you notice... Mackenzie directly contradicts John Salza here. Mackenzie says that the sin of heresy can be externalized, something that Salza denies because he says sin is only a matter of the internal forum. But that's not true. In fact, when the sin of heresy is externalized, Mackenzie says, then it becomes the crime of heresy. But make no mistake about it, just because the sin has become the crime doesn't mean that it is no longer a sin. It is simply more than a sin, then. It is also a crime. Next, more from John Salza. He says that a pope could only lose his office if guilty of the crime of heresy, and then adds the following. And this is at the 43-minute, 59-second mark now.
1: There's a formal aspect that has to be proven in the external forum, and you have to prove that the Pope and the Church would have to prove that the Pope was pertinacious. This is the form of heresy, that he was pertinacious in his will by consciously denying or doubting a truth that much must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. And the theologians are unanimous on this point. They're unanimous to say that it is by ecclesiastical process and not private judgment that the formal aspect of heresy has to be ascertained. It is a judgment by the church and not by the private individual Catholic.
0: Now, this is a complete and total mess Saul's just made here. First of all, he keeps making this about loss of office of a true pope. I personally don't believe that a true pope can lose his office. If someone claiming to be pope turns out to be a manifest heretic, then maybe this simply proves that his election to the papacy was invalid to begin with for one reason or another. But okay, we'll let that slide. Even Sede Vacantis uh, disagree on uh, whether the Vatican II Popes began as true popes and lost their office or whether they were never validly elected in the first place, at least with um, John Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth, usually. But in any case, let's agree for the sake of argument that it's possible for a true pope to lose the papacy. Salsa says that not only do you have to prove that the pope in question uttered something heretical, you'd also have to prove that he did it pertinaciously, meaning that he was fully aware of his denial of dogma and uttered it anyway. And to do that, so Salsa claims, the church must follow a process to determine pertinacity in the pope, right? That's, uh, that's what we just heard him say. Now, We've addressed this on our blog, The Novus Ordo Wire, uh, before, but let me just repeat it. The Pope has no superior on earth and therefore cannot be subjected to a trial. What John Salza is putting forth here is the heresy, yes, heresy, that the Church can judge the Pope. But to do that, the Church would have to be above the Pope, And that's Gallicanism, okay? That's the name of the heresy, Gallicanism. For details, just have a look at our blog post, The Impossibility of Judging or Deposing a True Pope, that we're linking to in the show notes. We have all the evidence there, and I'd like to quote one part in particular, and that's the canonist Father Stanislaus Woywood whom we also quoted earlier. Quote, the primatial see can be judged by no one, canon 1556. The supreme pontiff has the highest legislative, administrative, and judicial power in the church. The code of canon law states that the Roman pontiff cannot be brought to trial by anyone. The very idea of the trial of a person supposes that the court conducting the trial has jurisdiction over the person, but the Pope has no superior, wherefore no court has power to subject him to judicial trial, unquote. That's Father Stanislaus Wywood, a practical commentary on canon law, 1952 edition, number 1549. So, that's pretty clear, and that directly contradicts what John Salza just said. Next, let me share with you another good one. Father Thomas Joseph Burke from the book Competence in Ecclesiastical Tribunals, published in 1922. He says the following on page 87, quote, "...the reason why the Pope can be judged by no one is evident." No one can be judged by another unless he is subject to that person, at least with respect to the subject matter of the trial. Now, the Roman pontiff is the vicar of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to him has been entrusted the commission to feed his lambs and his sheep. In no way, therefore, can he, the Pope, be subjected to any man or to any forum but is entirely immune from any human judgment. This principle, whether taken juridically or dogmatically, suffers no exception, unquote. Okay? So, exit John Salza. The very idea that the Church could summon the Pope before a tribunal to detect his pertinacity is an absurdity. Now, of course, you're probably going to ask, well, wait a minute, if even the Church cannot judge that the Pope is pertinacious, then how can each individual sede vacantus do that? And the answer to that is actually very simple once the necessary distinctions are drawn. So, please bear with me here for for just a second. The Church, as such, can only make a legal judgment— but there is no legal judgment possible against someone who actually is Pope. So, if he is the Pope, then that's it. The Church cannot take the pontificate from him, and any sort of Church pronouncement could always be declared invalid by the very Pope himself anyway. In fact, the Pope could declare the entire proceeding against him to be a sham, null and void. So, The idea of a church tribunal against a reigning pope to determine pertinacity, although maybe very appealing to John Salza, is an absurdity. Now, as far as individual Catholics go, we too, of course, cannot make a legal judgment against a pope for the exact same reasons. But when we say that Francis is not the pope but a heretic, it is not a legal judgment— that we're rendering, it is a cognitive judgment, the same way you would judge that anyone else, too, is not a Catholic who professes the heresies that Jorge Bergoglio professes. And this is possible because it is externally evident that the person in question is not a Catholic. That's objective, okay? To say that it is impossible to determine objectively whether someone is a non-Catholic would imply that it is likewise impossible to determine who is a Catholic. And so, once again, you would end up with an invisible church. No one would know who is and isn't a Catholic. Now, the church could, of course, summon a pretend pope before a tribunal and officially declare him not to be the pope, and that would be a legal judgment, a valid, legitimate legal judgment, But the Church can only do that if it is manifest that the man in question already isn't the Pope and couldn't possibly be. Because then there is no question of judging a Pope, but merely of pronouncing a manifest non-Pope to be exactly that, a non-Pope. And so, this judgment would, strictly speaking, not be necessary to establish that the individual is not Pope, especially not since this fact is what makes the judgment possible in the first place, but it would be immensely useful because it would establish the matter legally and so make it notorious in law. At this point in the interview, then, Eric Gajewski starts talking, and he transitions into the... Spiritual maladies that Sedevacantists allegedly suffer from. Yeah. Salza then accuses Sedevacantists quite generally of being dishonest, and I find that really ironic. You know, I be, look, I can obviously only speak for myself and for Novel's Ordo Watch as a whole, okay? But I suggest you take a good look at our post entitled The Case of the Omitted Text, which we've linked in the show notes, to see with what dishonest audacity John Salza accuses others, ironically, of deception. And I'm not kidding. And look, I know that it's not politic to accuse others of being dishonest, and I normally wouldn't go there. But when you see what he's done, you will be in utter disbelief at the man's duplicity and chutzpah. And in this particular case, he accused me personally of omitting a portion of text from St. Robert Bellarmine that allegedly undermines the Sede Vakantist position. And he does that by quoting from a Order Watch blog post that does indeed Omit passages from Saint Robert, but what he doesn't tell you is that the post in question is only a teaser post that just gives a portion of Saint Robert Bellarmine and then invites the reader to click on the big fat link and read the entire chapter. Okay, the whole point of that post was to introduce the reader to the first ever full English translation. Of St. Robert's De Romano Pontifice by Ryan Grant. And so I posted the entire chapter, all of it, with the translator's permission, Mr. Grant's permission. I posted that on the Novels Watch website, and I created a post on the blog specifically to let people know that the full translation had now been published. And in order to whet the reader's appetite for the contents of the chapter, I quoted a few passages from that chapter of St. Robert to highlight some of what St. Robert says. And then I put two, I think it was two, yeah, two links to the full chapter into that post, asking people to please click and read the chapter in its entirety. Okay, And this teaser post is what John Salza used as quote-unquote evidence that I've omitted text from St. Robert Bellarmine to deceive people. Wow. I could not believe it when I saw it. This is the kind of person we're dealing with here, folks. Anyway, in the show notes, click on the case of the omitted text to see all the evidence, including screenshots, and you too will be in disbelief. All right, you know what? Originally, I didn't mean to um, cut this show into two segments, but I think think we all need to take a break. We'll be right back. Trackcast.
2: Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming, one that addresses not only the current crisis in the Church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic.
0: For EWTN, this ain't it. Trackcast. Bradcast episode 15 second segment you know what they say ignore this podcast at your own risk that's right but you're not ignoring it so that's good we still have a lot to talk about we have been talking about Eric Gajewski's interview of John Salza that was uh, published back in October of 2015 and which has already been taken down since because Erika Juski no longer agrees with John Salza about a lot of things theologically. And uh, But you know what? That really doesn't matter right now because they're both wrong anyway. So let's uh, continue with where we left off. Before the break, and uh, that is, oh yeah, the spiritual maladies that uh, we Sedevacantists allegedly suffer from. At the 47 minute, 25 second mark in the interview, John Salza says that Sedevacantists themselves admit that there are spiritual maladies in Sedevacantism. Now, this is just rich. Actually, in his book, True or False Pope, that he co-authored with Robert Sisko, and that post-dates this interview, he only quotes two people, two, who allegedly admit this. One of them is Mr. John Lane from Australia. Okay, fair enough. And the other is a former contest. That's it. That's uh, what's behind this contest. admit that they're, you know, spiritually ill or something. But anyway, let's just take things at face value. Let's say for the sake of argument that there are many spiritual maladies, which of course have been left conveniently undefined, among Sedevacontists. Precisely how does that show that the position is false? Perhaps it simply testifies to the fact that the mystical body of Christ is greatly afflicted. Maybe that's what it shows. Secondly, you know, it's actually very easy to turn this charge around. I mean, look at the Novus Ordo sect. If that thing... Isn't full of spiritual malady, I don't know what is. Salza himself calls it the counterfeit church of conciliarism. But for some strange reason, this counterfeit church doesn't have a counterfeit pope, but a genuine one. Figure that one out. And then thirdly, from my own experience, I have to say that the craziest people I ever that I ever met. I found in the Indult, okay, that branch of the Sardo sect that would like to go back to pre-Vatican II times but endures the modernist revolution in the meantime and attaches itself to the 1962 Missile. I mean, you find everyone there. You have Phineites, Baysiders, siders Medjugorje believers, Novos Ordo's, SSPXers, proponents of all sorts of bizarre apparitions like the Kingdom of the Divine Will cult and whatnot. I mean, if John Salza wants to have a conversation about spiritual maladies and where they exist, we can have that conversation. And in fact, in the show notes, we're linking a video by Father Anthony Cicada that shows the bitter fruits of the Society of Saint Pius X. Okay, just for some balance. (coughs) Yeah, exactly. Lastly, perhaps Mr. Salza should have spent some more time reading actual Catholic documents instead of giving interviews to such. Wholesome people, as Mr. Eric Gajewski, who has an obsession with eagles, apparently, and runs the so-called Order of the Eagle. He calls his followers eagles, and has stated in public that he is or could be the great monarch of the end times. He's also claimed that our Lord has told him that at some point in the future, he, Eric Gajewski, will be giving the orders to his eagles. Whatever that means, okay? Something about restoring monarchy or whatever. I don't know and I honestly don't want to know. So, I mean, yeah. Just the kind of guy you'd want to be on a show with to talk about spiritual maladies, right? That's awesome. All right. Well, yeah. check Check the show notes. We've got the link there on that whole issue as well. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Anyway... I meant to say that when it comes to spiritual maladies and disorders John Salza should have listened to Pope Pius XII who says the following in his encyclical Mystici Corporis number 66 quote And if at times there appears in the church something that indicates the weakness of our human nature, it should not be attributed to her juridical constitution, but rather to that regrettable inclination to evil found in each individual, which its divine founder permits even at times in the most exalted members of his mystical body, for the purpose of testing the virtue of the shepherds no less than of the flocks and that all may increase the merit of their Christian faith. For, as we said above, Christ did not wish to exclude sinners from his church. Hence, if some of her members are suffering from spiritual maladies, that is no reason why we should lessen our love for the church, but rather a reason why we should increase our devotion to her members. Unquote. And that was Popeyes XII, Mr. G. All right, I'd say that settles the whole spiritual maladies issue. Now, we're starting to go a bit long here. We're already about 55 minutes into the show. So, I'd like to tackle only one more major argument from John Salza in his October 2015 interview. And that's the hilarious accusation that Vacantism is just a bunch of Protestantism, and there is no unity. We're at the 47 minute, 46 second mark in the interview, and this is what John Salza says.
1: The Sedevacantum is is really uh, a form of Protestantism. It ultimately relies upon private judgment. There can be no unity uh, with, you know, based on private judgment. And that's why you see that Vacantis disagree with each other, just like the Protestants.
0: We'll interrupt here for a second, just to refute the silly private judgment accusation. And remember, we already talked about that a little bit earlier. John Daly blew that whole private judgment thing out of the water back in 1989. Okay? And if Salza had done his research, he would have seen it. And we're linking Daly's article, uh, taken from his book Refuting Michael Davies, In the show notes, he republished the book John Daly did in a second edition in 2015, and now the entire book is available electronically for free online at our website, uh, or you can purchase it as a paperback copy. Anyway, Daly refutes the private judgment objection at length, but... I'd like to just give you a quick summary here. The private judgment that the Catholic Church condemns and that we find in Protestantism is not the cognitive reasoning that takes place when the mind takes a Catholic principle and applies it to a concrete case at hand, as John Salza would have you believe. Rather, it's the kind of judgment that is based on a subjective, non-Catholic criterion in opposition to that given by the Church. The great 19th century American Catholic writer Orestes Brownson summed it up beautifully in the following paragraph, which is quoted by John Daly Quote, Here is the error of our Protestant friends. They recognize no distinction between reason and private judgment. Reason is common to all men, private judgment is the special act of an individual. In all matters of this sort, there is a criterion of certainty beyond the individual, and evidence is adducible which ought to convince the reason of every man, and which, when adduced, does convince every man of ordinary understanding, unless through his own fault. Private judgment is not so called because it is a judgment of an individual, but because it is a judgment rendered by virtue of of a private rule or principle of judgment. The distinction here is sufficiently obvious, and from it we may conclude that nothing is to be termed private judgment which is demonstrable from reason or provable from testimony, unquote. And that is from Arrestes Brownson's uh, quarterly review, October 1852, pages 482 and 483. And once again, that is quoted also by John Daly, and you can find that in our show notes. So, these are the facts concerning the nature of private judgment. Now, let's go back to John Salza because he now goes into specifics about what Sedevacantists all disagree on. And we are now at the 48 minute and 4 seconds mark, so let's take a listen.
1: You know, some state of the will say, well, the popes are not popes because they were heretics before the election. And then other state of the will say, no, they fell from office after the election. You have most state of accountants saying that these guys are not popes at all. But then you have some, you know, adhering to this theory of De Laurier, who said they're at least material popes, even though they're not formal popes. They have all different kinds of theories on infallibility, extraordinary versus ordinary theories on whether the new mass was promulgated or not. Some think that the new rite of Episcopal consecration for bishops is valid. Others don't. And they also condemn each other.
0: Oh, now that sounds just horrible, doesn't it? Well, actually, it's not nearly as bad as Salza makes it sound. See, John Salza is assuming, and probably hopes you assume, too, that all disagreement, all disunity, as it were, is impermissible. So, let's put this in perspective. First, regarding the question of whether the new Mass was promulgated properly or not by Paul VI... You know, I have never heard different Sedevacandists agree or disagree on that point because it's usually not something that comes up in discussion. It just doesn't matter. Sedevakandism doesn't stand or fall with that question. All right. Um, Secondly, regarding different theories on infallibility, I don't even know what he's talking about there. It's not an issue because at the end of the day, everyone has to go by what the church says on the matter, and we know what the church says. I mean, you can look it up, okay? So I have no idea what Salza means here. Perhaps not everyone understands uh, what it is that the church teaches on the question, but that's hardly the fault of Sedevacantism. Thirdly, regarding the validity of the new rite of Episcopal consecration, the Novo Ordo rite promulgated by Paul VI in 1968, here too, the Church's teaching is clear, the Church teaching on what is required for a valid Episcopal consecration. If anything is questionable, it's whether applying this teaching to the Paul VI rite shows that the new rite is invalid or not. It's legitimate to disagree on that, at least in principle, because it's not like we have a papal bull, like Apostolic Curé of Leo XIII, that decrees the Anglican ordinations invalid. It's not like we have something like that for the Novus Ordo rite of ordination. So any disagreement on this matter is legitimate in principle. I say in principle because if you look at the evidence, I don't see how you, could, how you could come to any other conclusion than that the 1968 rite of Episcopal consecration is invalid. But in principle, the matter, of course, is legitimate to disagree on. Then the question whether the Vatican II popes were never true popes to begin with, or whether they fell from office. Well, as much as I personally would insist that they were never true popes to begin with, I can't say that it's absolutely impermissible to hold that they were elected true popes but then lost their offices subsequently at some point. Let me explain why disagreement between Sede Vacandas on this matter is not impermissible quite simply because one can make the argument that the Church has not definitively ruled out the possibility that a true Pope can lose his office, although the preponderance of the evidence, I would argue, is very much against it. And secondly, because the invalidity of John Twenty-Third and Paul VI does not clearly manifest itself immediately from the very beginning— Of their supposed pontificates, but only at some later time. But the point here is that we know that they were not true popes from a certain point onwards, at least, and if it be granted that it is not possible for a pope to lose his office, then this means they were never true popes to begin with. So again, here, John Salza is making a big deal about disagreements that are a legitimate subject for discussion. Fifthly, the material formal thesis of Bishop Gerard de Laurier, according to which the Novosorto popes are popes materially but not formally, meaning, in essence, that they possessed a valid papal election but never actually became pope because they placed an obstacle, that of clinging to heresy, for example, that vitiated their valid ascendancy to the pontificate. This, too, is a legitimate issue to dispute and disagree about. Here the question is not whether these individuals were valid popes, but rather what prevented them from being valid popes when, to all appearances, or at least, if we assume this, when they were in possession of a valid election. This, too, is totally legitimate to discuss and does not cause any sort of disunity among Sedevacanists the way John Salza would have you believe. But really, Saul's argument here is flawed, not only in fact, but also in principle, because let's just say that all Vacantists agreed on all these issues that we just enumerated. Well, any such agreement would be accidental only anyway, meaning we would all just so happen to agree. But without there being any principle of unity, the Pope binding our consciences, who could bring about this agreement of wills. So the whole issue is a moot point. It's a tremendous red herring for Salza to bring up. And lastly, the charge that Sedevacanus, or some of them at least, issue condemnations of one another about some of these issues. Yeah, that never happened in church history, right? That disproves everything. I mean, come on, read church history. At times, there were plenty of brawls between clerics of different theological schools, anathematizing one another on matters that the church had not settled and the popes had to step in. So, let's keep things in perspective here. It is fallen human nature, and if this fallen human nature can rear its ugly head when there is a pope in office, you'd better believe it also can when there isn't. But seriously, whom is John Salza kidding here? All of the things he enumerated, well, maybe with some few exceptions, but in general, All these disagreements and problems that he brought up are also found in his religion, in his version of traditional Catholicism. They're not all specific to Sedevacantism. In his position, too, not everyone agrees on whether Paul VI promulgated the Novus Ordo Mass properly. People don't agree about the nature or or binding authority of Vatican II. Heck, they can't even agree on whether um, Vatican II contains error much less heresy. And so, for example, Christopher Ferreira has always been very careful to claim that Vatican II does not contain even error, only confusing novelties and neologisms of which we are not really sure what they mean. You can tell he's a lawyer. John Venari, on the other hand, and the Society of St. Pius X, insist that Vatican II contains error, perhaps even heresy. I'm not exactly sure about what they claim anymore, but certainly, absolutely error, that's that's for sure. Then, uh, people in resistance land are also at odds with one another over what constitutes an exercise of the magisterium. They disagree over whether one should or could go to the indult mass of the Fraternity of St. Peter, for example. Society of St. Pius X says no. Michael Matt says yes. And, of course, don't forget, throughout the Novus Ordo Church, you have so called Catholics of Every imaginable stripe. You have Blaise supich Joan Chittister, Richard Rohr, you have Michael Voris, John Venari, John Salza, E. Michael Jones, Robertson Jennis, Michael Rose, Jimmy Aiken, Thomas Rosica, Rumbert Weekland, Hans Kung, Joe Biden. I mean, seriously, is John Salza going to tell us that all these share the same religion? That they enjoy unity? These people don't agree on matters of faith, morals, discipline, worship, or government, church government. And yet all of them, according to the official books, the official records, are considered Catholics in good standing even. So I don't think John Salza wants to be the one talking here. And as far as unity goes, at this point, of course, Eric Gajewski is denouncing John Salza and Robert Sisko as pseudo-traditionalists and quack theologians and whatnot. And, and Salza is denouncing the Reverend Paul Kramer for his alleged misrepresentation of St. Robert Bellarmine and so on. So, to all these semi-traditionalists, I would say, please don't lecture us Sedevacantas about a lack of of unity. Our lack of unity is accidental and has a very simple cause. There is no pope to enforce unity. You guys, on the other hand, have a pope, or you think you do, and your religion is still a mess. In theory, our situation can be remedied quite easily. We just need a true pope. That's all that we need. You guys, on the other hand, cannot resolve your predicament even in principle because in your case anyone is free to reject anything by a true pope which he deems is not traditional or a threat to the faith or not in line with what some other prior pope would have wanted or not what Archbishop Lefebvre thought or whatever. And that is precisely, Semitrads, that is precisely why your position is a dead end, whereas Sedevacantism is an open end. See, it all comes down to this. The recognize and resist traditionalism ends in a gigantic contradiction, whereas Sedevacantism only ends in mystery. But mystery is compatible with reason, and it's compatible with Catholicism. Contradiction is not. All right, we'll end our analysis here for today and pick it up in a future episode, hopefully not too far into the future. But um, you can see how long it takes to dissect an interview like this and and comment on it piece by piece. It's a tremendous amount of work, but, you know, someone's got to do it. Might as well be me. All right. All right, so quick reminder. We have a new website. Yes, brand spanking new and polished just for you. We rebuilt the thing entirely from scratch and organized and labeled it so everything is really easy to find and very pleasant to use. Go to novusordowatch.org novosordowatch.org. That's N-O-V-U-S-O-R-D-O-W-A-T-C-H.org. And take a look, and don't forget to tell your friends about it. Uh, same goes, of course, for Tratcast.org, Tratcast.org, which is a part of the Novus Ordo Watch website. Check it out, and discover or rediscover all our great content brought to you entirely free of charge and speaking of free of charge please do remember that at this point we rely entirely on your contributions to operate our website upgrade was very expensive and uh came also with some unexpected expenses it was uh, a very labor intensive thing as you can imagine and um Yep, we uh, upgraded our web host, and uh, that's why the site is now super fast and can take lots of visitors. So, if you benefit from our work, or if you want to show your gratitude on behalf of those who do benefit, but maybe cannot contribute, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our organization so that we can continue to expose the modernist Vatican II Church, And all false alternatives at full throttle. Go to novusordowatch.org slash donate or simply click on the link in the show notes. It is much appreciated. And now we'll call it a day. Remember to check out the hilarious anti-Vatican II song that I told you about in the beginning of this broadcast. And tune in again next time. God bless you.